For me, I'd like to see an Indigenous-led and run accreditation organization. It's time that we take that on ourselves as well, because we know the expertise that's out there. I think it's important that Standards Council accreditation bodies make sure that there are new standards written about attention to truth and reconciliation because the inequities in healthcare across the board are still happening. That's Deborah Dell. She's the executive director of a national committee that supports the National Youth Substance Abuse Addictions Treatment Program. And that network is uh, comprised of 10 First Nations youth residential treatment centers across Canada. And she joins us with Karen Main, who is the associate director of that national network. They are our guests today on Minobimatsuin for the second conversation that highlights the quality of the addiction services for First Nations youth. They're going to talk to us about how they know there is quality, what that looks like, and their processes for facilitating continuous quality improvement. I'm Carol Hopkins, CEO of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, an organization that supports First Nations across Canada in mental wellness. And today, I'm hosting Minobimatsuin. Minobimatsuin means living the good life in the language of Anishinaabe. And Thunderbird chose that as a name for the podcast because it captures what we all hope for, for ourselves and those that we care about. This podcast aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many of First Nations families and communities are dealing with. We're going to be fearless and have thoughtful and informative conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Our aim is the same as Thunderbirds, to offer support in addressing substance use and addictions issues through a holistic approach to healing and wellness. One that is grounded in culture, Indigenous ways of knowing, with a connection to community and above all else, with kindness and compassion. So greetings. We are here today talking with Dr. Deborah Dow and Karen Main, who are working with a network of youth treatment services that range from day programs to live-in residential programs, on-the-land programs, outreach, outpatient, delivering services in a virtual environment. And we're here to talk about the quality of those services how do you know what makes a difference for First Nations youth? So I'm going to turn it over to you, to Karen or Deb, who wants to start off by talking about the services that are offered to First Nations youth related to addictions and mental health, mental wellness. Sure. Well, Karen and I are both here representing WISAC, which is um, the Youth Substance Addiction Committee. We're, we're a network of treatment centers that are spread across the country from coast to coast, Labrador to British Columbia. Um, we've been together as a network for over 25 years, um, doing a lot of things related to quality together in a, in a sort of a community of practice type way. Um, some of that was initially spurred by accountability measures, you know, where the government was saying to us, if you're going to do this, you must not repeat the mistakes of the past <laughs> and you must, um, you must get accredited and you must have these kind of outcomes and you must maintain 80% occupancy. 
But in that, um, the group came together and talked about what their vision of quality was, what, what kinds of things did they want to monitor and measure in the treatment facility across a broad range of areas. So we, beginning in um, 1998, 2000, we started to develop a, a total quality framework or a quality assurance framework and a best practice manual. And that kind of covered areas of quality that were related to broad areas of leadership and governance, um, the human resources, the direct client care types of things, um, and the way we were going to manage information and data in, in and of itself across all of the different projects and programs that are exist in a 24-hour residential model. So it's, I think, quality as a as an idea <laughs> in the beginning probably came from the outside, but it's evolved to be a really homegrown vision of what quality is across all of those subject areas. So originally there was a mandate uh, that you were required to meet in, you know, accountability measures uh, specific to funding. But when you got into the process of discussing what is quality, it took on a life of its own and the network of services that you described then started to work on what's meaningful to them. That's right. Yeah. And both internally and through partnerships, you know, partnerships that we had with some um, researchers or with Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, um, just looking at all the different ways to measure wellness. Um, you're, you're very familiar with the Indigenous Wellness Framework and building that into all of our courses and our our quality frameworks, making sure that it links back to those as primary indicators of uh, change in holistic health. So what difference does that make when you're talking about applying uh, those Indigenous-defined indicators of wellness and using that to demonstrate quality? What real difference does that make for the youth in your program? Can you help our listeners understand what it looks like uh, for youth that are, is coming from a community into a program, no matter whether it's residential, outpatient, or any kind of the services, and what it means for them when they go back home? What does quality look like if you're applying those Indigenous-defined indicators? Actually, I was just working on this this week. <laughs> so, Good timing. You know, all, all in all, it was... Yeah, I was uh, drawing literature review from all of the different quality frameworks across Canada and in North America and then comparing them to what we're doing at WISAC. And it, it was a really, really proud moment pulling it together because I think there's there's some measures that we have in there um, that aren't talked about in any other frameworks. And if you want to you know, talk specifically about hope, belonging, meaning, and purpose, I think we have mechanisms to measure that in our pre and post assessments with the native wellness assessment. We have mechanisms to measure it while it's happening through the satisfaction and exit questionnaires, through some of the initiatives that are happening just in the day-to-day counseling um, with the cultural practitioners in the centers. Um, And then we also have ways to look at it in our staff because we're, we're also saying that if you're going to work in an organization that is purporting to um, 
increase these in the young people, then you better feel hope, belonging, meaning, and purpose in your job at the at the facility too. So we've begun to analyze some of our staff satisfaction data along those same areas of of interest for just holistic health functioning, you know, caring about who the workforce is, is a generally a standard quality indicator across quality frameworks. So you've taken one model or measure and in indicators, and you've applied it across the organization in the program, like you said, when you're, you're asking young people uh, for their understanding about how they experience the services. So their satisfaction with the services, you're looking at it in terms of how does it support recruitment and retention of staff? How does it support their ability to deliver services that reflect hope, belonging, meaning, and purpose? So you've done a quite a bit of expansion and coordination of those indicators so that they're spread across the whole environment. Yeah, that's right. Karen, did you want to add anything to that? Maybe I think um, what I'd like to add here is that when you talk about quality, I spent 15 years as an executive director of one of the youth treatment centers. And during my time there, I likened accreditation or quality improvement um, I used to tell the staff, if you were going to a hospital, you'd want to make sure any office, right, medical practitioner, dentist, ophthalmologist, that you would want to make sure that they knew what they were doing and they were certified and accredited to do what they do. And I said the same as uh, the treatment centers that we're sending our youth to. If it was my youth going, one of my children, how can I assure that they're getting the best possible care? And sometimes the staff didn't realize they were part of that quality improvement process. But when we finished every intake, we used to sit down and debrief and go through the the intake and we'd say, what went well, right? What really went well? What didn't go so well? And how can we improve that? and then try it again for the next intake, because we had three or four intakes per year. And we'd implement it and try it again and evaluate it at the next. And um, so the staff, when it came to accreditation time and, and their own input into the quality improvement cycle, they didn't maybe use that jargon or those words, but they were part of it. So to be able to tell them that every time we look at that client satisfaction survey, when the the kids leave the, the facility and you ask them everything from, do they feel safe? What's the best food they had? What made the biggest impact on their, the programming? And it was always the top was culture, uh, language. Um, having a, self, a sense of identity of where they came from, you know, that, that made big differences to them. So all those things that you work in, whether it's through an organizational process or policy or your staff training and their experience they bring to the table, all lends to making that um, stay for the youth so relevant for them. If they can see people that they're working with that can acknowledge 
where they come from, where, you know, the language they speak, the way they do things. They have a, they know there's a vested interest in them, in their well-being. And that just uh, makes, you know, high quality outcomes. Kids stay longer. Um, they may not use after a while when you do follow-up, their relapse may be a lot longer. Uh, or they're more, even the awareness of their substances and the harms that they do afterwards, um, that information is, is key as well. Maybe they go back to school. Maybe they are finished with the justice system. So there's so many indicators of wellness that can be used uh, in that quality improvement process. And uh, it's, a, it's a big process in itself for an organization to go through accreditation. But I know from taking the staff through it that there's an incredible sense of um, accomplishment and pride in knowing that if you got three, four years of accreditation, you're meeting the, the highest standards. And in some cases, um, you know, overachieving in those areas. So the, it was good for the staff for sure. And of course, good for the clients because that quality comes out in the care they get. Karen, you've um, talked about the appreciation. It's a lot of hard work that goes into meeting those standards of excellence and, and demonstrating quality. But you also shared about how that mindset of continuous quality improvement, the mindset of we want to offer the best services possible. So we need to talk about it, those ongoing conversations of what went well, what didn't go so well. I think one of the things I hear in that is, that it's okay to make mistakes, mm. that it's okay to learn from our, our mistakes. And yes. can you tell me about that learning journey for your staff and for your organization? Did Do people always feel like it's okay to make mistakes and we can learn from it? Or or what was that journey like for, for the staff in the process of, you know, working towards demonstrating the quality of their services? I think it can be a humbling experience. <laughs> Everybody, um, when you first get into it, it can, you know, you're trying to be the best you can as an organization. Now working for, um, and we did the best we can when we were an organization for sure. And everybody was very proud of that. And um, a piece of it, right? They all had a piece of it um, of getting that, uh, three or four year certification or accreditation, I should say. Now, in working with all nine um, organizations with WISAC and helping them through uh, the accreditation process, it's um, it's it amazes me at the level <laughs> of um, self. Uh, how do you say they set the bar really high for themselves and they expect them and their staff uh, to meet those objectives, but in a good way. So it's not like one or two years will do like they, they strive to be the best that they can. And um, so sometimes. Can you give me uh, an example of that? Can I want our listeners um, to learn about 
what that looks like in a practical way, um, how they strive to be the best that they can. And not just around that time of an accreditation survey or, you know, the time when it's uh, time of year when you have to submit reports, but it's, it's ongoing. It is ongoing. That's one thing that um, I think that's why I stayed so long in the WISAC um, network was because when I came on, I was new, obviously, and I had to look to the other directors in the network for that peer support. And that's one thing that WISAC uh, nurtures is a sense of helping each other. And there's good competition, but it in the end, it was always an open policy that we share policies, we share practices, because why reinvent the wheel, right? Mm-hmm. You can save your energy for doing better with each other. And uh, that's one thing at the WISAC meetings, when the directors meet, is they're not scared to share their policies and openly ask for them hey there's a new standard how can who's got a policy on it everybody shares it they make you know tweak it to so that it means something to for them that it's relevant to them and the way they do things within their centers but because there's so many best practices the centers continually feed off of one another to keep striving for that excellence in whatever they're doing so during my time at WISAC, I've seen the centers go from youth treatment, uh, expanding out to family treatment now. And there's a lot of land-based treatment, which never used to be there, but it's, you know, then COVID, of course, uh, produced virtual treatment. <laughs> so there was a lot of different um, uh opportunities for the treatment centers to help boost each other up in what they were doing and build on those things that were working. So I think that's one thing is having that openness and that ability to share with one another. So that culture of continuous improvement, always looking at how can we do better? What are we learning from any missed opportunities or something that didn't work out so well, maybe not as it was planned, it turned out differently. There's always an interest in evaluating and learning how you can do better. That's such a incredible way to ensure good quality services for First Nations youth. And earlier you said that, you know, some of the differences that you know demonstrate the quality of your services are uh, in the follow-up with youth. They're back in school, maybe not involved with the justice system. They're using less substances or the time of relapse is longer. Uh, They don't immediately go back to substance use once they return to their communities. And there's two questions I have for you because there's a conversation in Canada about coerced treatment. And uh, so the idea that youth are forced to go to treatment for treatment services for addictions, maybe that they don't choose. Um, And I don't know what your thoughts are about youth choosing to go to treatment, but if they are not choosing that path and someone in their life is, coordinating or 
facilitating their entry into treatment services, you know, there's a debate about that coercion and they're calling it coercion because the youth is not deciding to do that on their own. Somebody is forcing, bringing them uh, to the treatment center. And the idea that if youth do not choose it for themselves, then they rarely benefit from the treatment services. Can you talk about that? Like, are youth coerced or are they forced or do they choose it? And when you're talking about those kinds of outcomes, is are you talking about those outcomes because youth choose to go to treatment and that's why you have so much success? <laughs> um, it, again, just talking from my own perspective in my 15 years at running a treatment center, we always said that the youth had to have some willingness to be there. But we've had grandparents or guardians bring their youth, not telling them where they were going, showing up at the treatment center and doing intake with them. Well, the, the overall experience for the most part is if the youth don't buy in to staying, they're not going to stay long term. Most times the guardians or the grandparents could, you know, negotiate with the youth and say, give it a week, give it a week and see how it goes. Then the youth would stay for a week and see whether or not it worked. Sometimes it did. Sometimes they felt enough um, uh, comfort and safety and interest that they would stay. But uh, the ones that were dead set about Gates treatment, they often didn't last and they'd, they'd leave early. But in saying that, too, we've had youth that maybe have left in one, two, three weeks, even a month, and they return again because they whatever they seen there the first time they were there, they may not have been ready, but they've been mentally thinking about it and they'll apply back for another intake. So we've seen that, too. The only thing I would add to that course and Deb may have some thoughts on this course treatment, is you got to build those relationships right away. That's what's going to keep the youth right from leaving, is if staff can uh, build those relationships or they can build those relationships quickly with the other youth that are in that intake, they'll stay. So coercion or a choice or making your own decision to go to treatment is not so black and white. You can't say it's coercion or it's total choice. Um, what you're saying is, in your experience, is that youth don't know what treatment is about. They don't know how to understand the service. And so when parents or guardians or grandparents bring youth to the treatment center, they have that understanding and they're trying to facilitate uh, for the youth an exploration. Try it. Let's see how it goes. And then if they choose not to stay, they do exit the program. But you're also seeing that it's planted a seed. And so for those youth, they will come back. They will find a way to get in touch, to follow up. Um, Deb, do you have any insight into this whole argument about forced treatment, coerced treatment, or, you know, total choice? 
no, I totally agree with what Karen said about the just the multiple stories we have about youth who may have been forced in the beginning, but during that orientation period, um, they begin to see, you know, as they come off the drugs, they may, they begin to see, well, okay, well, maybe I'll try it for, and I mean, we heard so many young people say, I'm just going to try it for seven days. Okay, maybe 14 days. And, you know, slowly they agree to a little bit more. So, yeah, I love how you worded it, Carol, that choice is not black and white. And I think we have to think about one, adolescent development and their ability to make those clear choices in their adolescent brain development, but also in their depths of their drug use, right? Like the, the, that's not clarity of decision-making in either sense. And then have compassion for the people who are trying to force them. They're forcing them out of a place of complete and utter fear for their lives. You know, they just, they just want anybody to help and anything to help. Um, because they're just so scared. So I think we we take that lens of compassion for both situations. The young person who's extremely scared, they don't know what they're coming into. And we've, you know, just talking about quality in general, that whole intake process and making sure that it's it's clear and that we're we're making sure they're involved in their treatment plan, that they have choices at every stage of their treatment plan, even if the initial wasn't a full choice. Um, it's And it's so funny because this is one of the questions we, when we teach ethical decision-making, that is one of our ethical decision-making <laughs> questions when you're trying to weigh the right to autonomy and the whole idea of not doing any harm by letting them to continue their problematic use. So you're talking about autonomy and choice and decision-making which, you know, when you use the word autonomy, it, it kind of triggers Indigenous values, which are focused on family and community. And so our inherent values tell us, or and we're nurtured in that way, to think of the connections to others, the responsibility to others before self. And and somehow that gets displaced in in this whole conversation about um and and quite frankly gets displaced when we don't nurture um that in our schools in our in our family uh in families or in programs and services that are designed specifically for indigenous youth do you have any perspective on that just that conflict of values and um, and how do you preserve that in your services? How do you bring that to life? Does that contribute to quality when you are working from a foundation of Indigenous knowledge and values? I think so for sure because that whole, you know, in the whole orientation period and getting, getting young people to recognize that they are part of a bigger system um, and that that bigger system um, is going to be in the treatment center as well. You know, I know one of our treatment centers, the young people always refer to the staff as their aunties and their uncles. And they, they, in this satisfaction, they say things that, you know, make it known that the intent the treatment center had to treat them as family, to embrace them in the collective uh, worked because in the, you know, in the exit interview or the satisfaction, they'll say it felt like so-and-so and they'll name them by name. It felt like so-and-so was my uncle. They really care about me. They showed me the right way. They showed me the pathway. 
they gave me the time and the teachings. Like those are common phrases that we see in the satisfaction that I think says the intent of embracing the young person to know that they are not, um, that everything they do affects other people, right? And that other people are in grief from their substance use. That's, I think that is carried through very, very well. I have to agree too, because I think as Indigenous people and the the intergenerational trauma that we've all had when, you know, one of my goals at the treatment centre when I ran it was not to be a residential facility like uh, the residential schools. We want it to be a place uh, where the kids could feel at home and safe and that because they were with us for three, four months at a time, that we had to be their surrogate family members. So whether it was Mushams, Cookums, aunties, uncles, uh, we, we, you have to take that role if you're going to expect. I would expect that of my own child going somewhere, that they would feel a surrogate family to take, take that over. So I think it's important that um, that support system is built there. The other thing, too, I want to add for that is we've seen a need uh, early on of older youth that didn't want to go back into the system or go home. Um, And hence, um, we opened a transition home for older youth to go where they could have peer-supported environment. They could continue their education, get work experience, and... um, that has been a huge success um, for the lodge because they had a place to go after treatment. There's and it's it's um, staff two four seven. There's staff there, but they go further into the enhanced life skills of getting them their SID number, their driver's license, whatever it is they need, so that they can continue on their road to healing. And um, we're, you know, I'm proud of that because we had one young man that uh, was homeless in the city of Regina and the outreach worker went and got him, brought him into treatment. He finished treatment and then he applied to go to um, the transition home. And that youth went on to community college to finish his AB 12. In the meantime, he got a job in town. What is AB12? Oh, adult basic ed 12, grade 12. Okay. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) And then um, he got on um, working at a local bakery and he started out in the back uh, washing dishes. Then he went on to be cook and at the end he was server. He got his license. He saved up enough money to get his car, his first car ever. And um, he ended up uh, meeting an electrician in town and he got on as an electrical apprentice, electrician apprentice. And he's in his fourth year now. So he has since moved out of the transition home to his own apartment in, in Regina. But that's the stories we like to share. And they're not stories, they're real life stories, but... Um, taking that extra care for the people that come in, no matter where they come from, 
gives them, he found that hope, purpose, meaning, and belonging. And um, he's a success now. Right. So some of the things that you described that are unique, I think, to uh, First Nations or Indigenous uh, services for youth who are struggling with addictions are things like uh, relational environment, that, that therapeutic environment that is based on relationships, being connected to others, knowing that there's the de- interdependency and interrelatedness um, that if you can see me as not a staff person who has control over your life, but relate to me and I relate to you as auntie, uncle, uh, grandmother, grandfather, that that in itself facilitates a connection and engagement in their own healing and wellness journey. And what a story talking about someone who goes from living on the street without any resources to now uh, to owning their own car, finishing high school, owning their own car, working, and and now finishing uh, post-secondary um, education so that they now have a trade, they have skills, they have a good opportunity to sustain their mm-hmm their wellness on their own. I think giving people to, uh, um, and again, that comes from some of that intergenerational trauma, but, you know, we were taught, we were seen and not heard for many, many years. And I think um, the youth now need to have that voice and they're looking for that voice. They do want to be heard. So giving them that opportunity to be who they are, what they want to be is, is huge for them. So it's not just teaching them about their identity, your Cree or your uh, Nakoda nation, and this is your language, and this is the history of what happened to us. And, you know, your parents might have went to or, you know, family might have went to residential school. And, you know, it's not just telling them that story, but it's relating to them in a way that is demonstrating healthy family dynamics, the values that we hold in our culture for the importance of being connected to family and community and knowing that your life has purpose and in that connection and and in those relationships, you're, you're modeling that you're demonstrating that. And, uh, you know, so there's not much literature or there's not much evidence outside of this national network that says, you know, culture is um, the method, is the model, is the therapeutic intervention, um, the evidence base that we can rely on uh, for informing addictions treatment. And, uh, and yet you're taking youth into your care, providing services across the nine youth addictions treatment services and they're using culture to make a difference. And so what what would you say about the evidence to support that culture-based approach? Well, I would certainly say that we're getting better and better at gathering both the quantitative evidence of change in those belonging, meaning, purpose, and hope scores on the Native Wellness Assessment, as well as integrating that with other measures um, that are, you know, known to be quality indicators of good addictions outcome, 
Um, like as Karen mentioned, the reducing the criminal justice involvement, the staying in school, kind of the population health health indicators that go in. We we try to blend all of those together through the the data that we're collecting and asking the centers, you know, to also keep those stories of of the young people who have really changed in other ways that may not be so quantitatively measurable, but when you hear the difference. Um, so all of that together, I think, paints a picture of of exactly taking us back to your first question, how do we know we're, we're giving quality services? Well, on about 30 different quality indicators, you know, across both Indigenous measures and mainstream measures. Um, the kinds of things that I think when I sit around national tables, you know, for example, um, people say, oh, it's so hard for a treatment centre to get a, get accredited. It is hard. It's absolutely hard. It's it's a lot of dedicated work, but it's not impossible and it's meaningful to the end client because it, it kind of makes the system then work like dominoes. You know, if this part's here, then the next part's there. Um, 100% of our YSEC centers are accredited. And so sometimes when I hear that it's too hard, I'm just like, well, it's not too hard. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it, but it's, but yeah, I would never discount the, the effort that it takes. Um, but it, it can't just be, like you said in the beginning, Carol, it can't just be measuring up quality and accountability and accreditation. Those three things kind of fit together. But it can't just be measuring up to an outside observer. It has to be internally driven as well, or it becomes not as strong, I guess. Not um, as meaningful not as meaningful and not as integrated. You don't have that, that, that quality environment where everybody lives and breathes, you know, how are we delivering services? Can we do it better? Is it meaningful to the youth? Yeah. And I was going to, one of our directors who just went through accreditation for the very first time since becoming a new director, um, as going through the process, you know, there's all kinds of tools that YSEC has developed to help. There's a peer support group to help with standards. There's all these things. But eventually, the treatment center has to measure themselves and before they submit their first assessment. And at the end of that, the director said, oh, I get it now. I, like, I get how this document, which was so hard to write, is so useful for the future. And I said, yeah, I mean, you're brand new staff. You can just have them read that document <laughs> because you've done all the work to make all the linkages of why we even do this particular activity because this particular activity rolls into this other activity that rolls into this data collection that rolls into at the very end, we know we've done a good job. We know we've done right by the client and their family. Um, so it's, it was a powerful to hear that, that, you know, that was so hard, but so worthwhile. What are the courses that um, YSAC provides as quality improvement? And uh, in that course, I think for anybody that takes it, they, it's so eye-opening for them because every piece of information that's collected at a centre, whether it's from the intake form or the surveys or the pre-assessments, post-assessment, Every piece of paper that you're collecting should have a reason for it, right? And that's where it all, this course ties it together that 
everything that you're doing, all those reports that you have to fill in, they all go somewhere to measure something. And if they don't, then why are you doing them, right? Because data collection has to have a reason behind it. But um, so that always opens the eyes for the employees. Oh, that's the reason. That's where it goes to. Yeah. You could say there's other national processes that have looked at quality, but they have not looked at or they have not looked at or asked to look at the First Nations um, services. And that makes me wonder, you know, why is that? And I think, you know, my question to you then would be, and what I was going to get at was you've demonstrated quality. It makes a difference to youth and their families, uh, to the communities that they come from. You have ways of knowing that in all of your data, in your stories, in your own experience. But how well do you think funders and the general public know about the quality of your services. What is the knowledge there? What's the perception of the quality of First Nations or Indigenous specific services? I'm really glad you asked that question because this this sort of hit me this week, actually. I was reading a, a recently released national document about accountability and quality for um, residential services, residential addiction services. And um, it struck me right away that all of the key informants and all of the data, even the data table, it didn't have anything about the Canadian Indigenous system. It didn't have, it didn't have any placeholder even for the NADEP or YSEC treatment centers. The National Native Addictions, or the National Native Alcohol and Drug Abuse Program and the National Youth Treatment Program is what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. And so, and so then I thought, okay, well, that's maybe because they're programs and really they were the key informants were political people. But then I thought, well, but we're all federally funded. So there's definitely, um, you know, policymakers in the federal government that could have been advocating to uh, make sure that the quality frameworks. So then I thought, well, what is it? And I, I try to really keep an optimistic, hopeful lens all the time and think, well, maybe it's because we're so humble. And we don't do a lot of tooting our own horn and expl- explaining um, the depth of the quality accountability and accreditation frameworks that have been going on for more than 20 years in Indigenous programs. But then somewhere in that document, they reference some um, that a good model to follow might be an Indigenous program in New Zealand. <laughs> so it it just brings me back to think, <clears throat> where where is the gap? What what is going wrong? Is it is it stigma? Is it disbelief? Is stigma a nice way of talking about racism? Probably. Um, is it in you know? Is it value for expertise? Is it um, is there only a certain kind of expertise that's considered expertise? Um, what I, I mean, I would love to be on a fly in the wall and know how how does that happen that this entire project is missed in a document about quality, accountability, and accreditation? Um, I know from our data that um, there's probably more Indigenous residential treatment centers accredited than there are mainstream accredited treatment centers. So that's one piece of information that 
anybody who's concerned with accountability and quality probably should investigate. Why is that? Is it the supports? Is it because um, there's some federal initiatives to um, help centers get accredited financial, like with financial incentives? Is it is it the peer support network that Karen beautifully runs with with a group of people to help them understand accreditation? Like, what is it that makes that difference? Rather than just saying, "Oh, let's ignore that," there's a really good research question there. Why why is that? And if you don't believe that's true, at least investigate if that's true or not. I want to thank you both for talking about the quality of services and describing that and illustrating that for for our listeners and uh, in a way that instills hope and belief in the services that are driven by a strong, heartfelt desire to ensure that... Um, First Nations youth are cared for in the best way possible uh, in a way that honors the values of Indigenous people, that supports their connections to land, to family and community, um, with all of the cultural practices that are offered. And you've got a strong story of quality, and that story includes accreditation. I'm wondering what what else is needed? What more could be done? What needs to be done differently in that vein of continuous quality improvement? What's next? For myself, um, 17 years now um, with WISAC or the Youth uh, Substance Addiction Committee and 15 years of those uh, running a treatment centre, from early the early years, I've heard about um, and seen and witnessed um, many Indigenous organizations um, forming and being created uh, to look after different components of um, different areas, different fields. I've seen uh, the First Nations University of Canada be created to look after post-secondary education. Uh, I've seen the First Nation Health Managers Association get off the ground looking after um, the certification of its own health managers and uh, Indigenous Certification Board of Canada taking over the certifying of addiction counsellors. For me, I'd like to see and hope uh, that in my time, the remaining time with um, WISAC, that I'll be able to witness uh, an Indigenous-led and run um, accreditation organization. I think um, for many years, Indigenous people have um, have gotten the experience um, in working under the mainstream different certification and accreditation bodies. But Indigenous people have a lot of expertise on their own now, like Deb had just mentioned about um, the NADAP and WISAP centres not getting recognized for their accreditation journey and all the organizations that have achieved uh, accreditation and um, I'd like to certainly support uh, the creation of of an accreditation body that's Indigenous-led because for so many years, even up until the recent um, 
accreditation of some of our centers, uh, directors get frustrated and having to prove that they have uh, cultural practices, safety processes in place when it's embedded in the basic programming of the centers. So I think that uh, it's time that we take that on ourselves as well, because we know the expertise that's out there. So Karen, you're talking about we have capacity, we have expertise to develop standards that are meaningful, that are relevant to our services. We have the expertise and the strong desire for quality services, that all of that is meaningful to the youth that are served, meaningful to the communities uh, that are that are also served, to the families that are served. Um, and, and yet that there isn't value for all of that quality in all the ways that it's demonstrated, the certification of staff and core competencies for addiction services through the standards of excellence, meeting the standards of excellence for um, accreditation, ensuring good governance, that you're following standards related to human resources, you're following standards of excellence for infection control, and you're following standards of excellence for program delivery. And and I also know that some, some of the uh, youth treatment centers across the country are also licensed by provincial standards, minimum standards of care. And, and then you've been talking about the value for that community of practice, that sharing and understanding of experience, the sharing of best practices, the sharing of policies to meet standards. That's, that's the community of practice model that is so critically important to support that quality services. But you also said that in the process of accreditation, First Nations are tired of having to explain the value of culture over and over again to people who come in in whatever capacity, whatever role they play related to the quality, demonstrating quality, measuring quality, uh, measuring compliance or understanding compliance related to quality standards, standards of excellence for accreditation, that over and over again you're having to explain. And, and I wonder if in that re- explanation over and over again, you sometimes, I imagine you must sometimes wonder, is it heard? Because you said over and over again. So it's a, it's a repeated act of trying to explain what quality and culture and evidence um, have to do with each other, the relation. And so instead of uh, investing in educating others so, so that you can potentially get a fair assessment of compliance, that there's always that worry, there's always that stress. Will they understand the value of culture? Will there be a fair assessment? And so 
that return on investment is always a question that you're never quite sure if all of the ways that you demonstrate quality are going to be appreciated. And it's a huge investment. Deb, you talked about doing a lot of hard work to meet those standards of excellence, but you do it. And the investment in staff, the investment in the relationship with the families and the communities that the youth come from, there's a lot of investment. And I imagine also a monetary investment must cost a lot of money um, from programs that are not funded at the same capacity as publicly funded services in the provinces across this country. And yet you're spending your budgets on accreditation. You're spending and investing in quality, not only through budgets, but in the, in the education of staff, the board of directors. Like There's just so much that you talked about that you invest in ensuring quality. And if you come to those points in time where you're being assessed for compliance and you're being assessed by the evidence that you put forward and you're still wondering, will they understand what they are seeing? And that I imagine is stressful. Um, always wondering, will there be quality in the return on our, in, on our investment? So while you're promoting quality, you're never sure if the quality is going to be returned on your investment. Absolutely. You know, um, for accreditation purposes, um, you have to have so many hours of cultural teachings, certifications. Well, I think it, I can't remember offhand without looking into my standard, but um, you basically have to have a certificate. Yeah. For, for for it. So those non-First Nation organizations that have no culture, yes, you can get a practitioner in, somebody to teach you some cultural awareness, get your three hours in or six hours, whatever it is, and get your certificate. For those of us that live and breathe it every day, when you wake up and your morning smudge and your prayer and your spiritual is there and your sweat lodge and your feasts and it's just embedded in the day-to-day programming, having to produce a certificate to prove that we're providing that cultural uh, quality, cultural programming that surpasses way and above than what they asked for is just, yeah, it's, it's, it's demeaning on one hand um, to have to prove that you're doing it day-to-day. So, you know, some of the the organizations, um, that's one thing that Deb had talked about is what can some of the mainstream organizations do to meet some of those TRC requirements? What can they implement? What have they taken into account uh, when dealing with Indigenous organizations? Have they um, been able to address any of those calls to action in their own education. So the fact that you're asking that question means that there isn't clear evidence that the accreditation bodies themselves have invested in uh, reconciliation 
that they've invested in cultural safety, that they've invested in cultural humility um, to prepare for the accreditation of First Nation services. And so your your resolve is that it's time for us to think about, it's time for First Nations to think about um, an Indigenous-specific accreditation body. Absolutely. Well, that's a big dream there, Karen. And uh, TPF can do it. (laughs) (laughs) Thunderbird can do it. (laughs) Thunderbird can do it. Okay. (laughs) Well, uh, I know that the board of directors at Thunderbird Partnership Foundation has heard uh, the voice of First Nations adult and youth treatment centers, and they have made it a priority to investigate the possibility of establishing an indigenous specific accreditation body. So your dream may come true, Karen, and we'll be looking to you. I'm sure Thunderbird will be looking to you to uh, support that initiative. Good. Absolutely. I'll help. (laughs) I'm so thankful that you both have joined the Minobimatsuin podcast today. And so I want to thank you for your time for your rich sharing that I hope will help our listeners to understand the quality uh, that is within the youth-specific addiction services and all of the ways that that is attended to, whether it's residential treatment services, on-the-land treatment services, the day programs, the outreach to communities, providing workshops to communities to help them understand addiction services. You've talked a lot about quality today and the cultural foundation to quality, the Indigenous uh, definition of quality and what that looks like. So I want to thank you for, for taking the time to spend with us today. And again, I'll just ask, is there anything else that you want to say that I haven't asked you about? Um, you know, I just want to say maybe one more thing because we, of course, we work in Indigenous programs. We, like Karen said, that's what we live and breathe. I think um, as we're talking about quality and accreditation and accountability, and that's on the minds of, you know, the Canadian Standards Council, It's there's big projects right now going on about all of this. I think Karen touched on something really important, and that is whether or not you're in a federal indigenous specific indigenous governance program, or you're a health service in a provincial system that doesn't have those same parameters. Um, I think it's important that standards council accreditation bodies uh, make sure that there are new standards written about attention to truth and reconciliation, because the, the, the inequities in healthcare across the board um, are still happening and many hospitals are, you know, hospitals or health services are um, being measured for quality, maybe with not enough attention to, to that as well. So truth and reconciliation standards should be common practice. Another call to action. <laughs> Another wish. <laughs> as new standards for addictions and mental health or substance use health are being discussed in Canada, that there's consideration and and not even just consideration that there is attention and action related to ensuring that all health services, mental health services, substance use health services, that they all attend to uh, 
uh, how do they address equity for First Nations people, that they are relying on the truth and reconciliation calls to action, that they see themselves in having some responsibility uh, in acting on those uh, calls to action, that they're attending to anti-Indigenous racism. Karen, Deb, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I want to thank you for all that you shared on today's episode of Minimabatsuin. Oh, you're welcome, Carol. It's always good talking with you. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having us. And thank all of you for listening to this episode of Minimabatsuin. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and where you listen. It helps people to find these interviews. And please hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit the website at thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for us at thunderbirdpf. Miigwech and thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Carol Hopkins. <laughs>